1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And grinning broadly at the look of horror on Uncle Vernon's face, Harry set off towards the station exit, Hedwig rattling along in front of him for what looked like a much better summer than the last. I'm Buckbeak.
2: And I'm Sirius Black.
1: And we're off on an adventure for two at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Romance. (laughs) So Casper, Prisoner of Azkaban, arguably one of the more popular Harry Potter books. What are your thoughts?
2: You know, I mean, it's a charming, lovely book. I think we see a lot of development in a couple of key characters. New characters are introduced. But it didn't grab my heart in the way that Chamber of Secrets did. I don't know. How about you?
1: Yeah, we meet Trelawney, we meet Lupin, we meet Sirius, like we meet these big iconic characters. And I think we also get introduced to the idea of institutional corruption. And our ideas about Snape begin to be complicated in fun and interesting ways in this book. But I agree with you, there was something about this experience that was less satisfying to me than our experiences with books one and two. In book one, I felt like we got to this new place on Hermione where we were like, oh, she has to go through a profound change in order to be part of this trio. And in book two, like I feel like we got to this really interesting point on Ginny where we saw her as sort of embodying forgotten people everywhere. In this book, it feels like it's less rooted to me. And I'm wondering if that's because so much of the book, the trio is disbanded. I wonder if this book feels unrooted because Hermione is in a different time a lot of the time.
2: A hundred percent. And I would say this is the only book where we don't have Voldemort as an ever-present threat or danger. Like, it's a point of focus at which the trio or even the whole school can be directing its energy. The energy is going in all sorts of places, right? Hermione with her academic achievement. Lupin trying to look after Harry and reorient himself within the Hogwarts system. Snape trying to get revenge. Dumbledore is like MIA and then returns suddenly. Trelawney is having predictions. The
1: Weasleys are basically not in this book. Where is Ginny? We, like, found her and then she's, like, not in this book.
2: Oh, my God. She's just being back to a forgotten person. Right. Justice for Ginny. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I agree with you. It almost feels like the way it feels when you've been traveling too much. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even know what my routine looks like anymore.
2: Where am I today?
1: Right. We're just out of our routine. We're out of our Voldemort routine. We're out of our time routine. We are still fighting Voldemort in this book, right? The ripples of the injustice that he has done are being felt and fought on this level and I think that it's an amazing book in that way. We see that in the United States like the Civil War is not done. We are still fighting those exact same battles. So these battles are still being fought even though Voldemort isn't present but there is something narratively like missing when Voldemort is not on the page.
2: Well and I wonder you know when we engage with a text it's not just about the text it's about where we are when we're reading the text and I think you've hit on Exactly the point that maybe left this book at this time feeling a little flat to me is that we're in a world where there is a lot of evil at play. There are stakes which are enormously high. And maybe this book felt too light or too easy. Yeah, uh, not too t- small. Too small. Yeah, it's not that it's easy because it is complicated. But maybe the stakes felt too small or too low when, you know, when we look at the news, when we look at the headlines, things are so enormous. And so the charm of this book maybe left me a little dissatisfied this time around.
1: Yeah, I want Voldemort back.
2: I miss Voldy. What's a good thing that Goblet of Fire is next because he's back.
1: Casper, before we get more into the conversation, we're going to do our whole book 30 second recaps. But also, I would like to congratulate you because <gasps> the tallies are in. What? And I had a very respectable 40.8% of the
2: votes. Round of applause. And you had 59.2%. (laughs) 59.2%.
1: So I would like to congratulate you, and I got you a prize. You did? Yeah, you have the honor of going first in the whole book (laughs) 30-second recap. (laughs) On your mark, get set,
2: go. It's the third year at Hogwarts. Voldemort is on vacation so we are excited to welcome Lupin back and he's got the Marauder's Map because he made it and Snape and everyone and he and friends and then Peter Pettigrew back mouse I mean rat and bad things and um, Lupin is werewolf um, and Buckbeak's going to be executed Hagrid loves him and then Trelawney has Prediction and then Hermione has Time Turner to do classes and then saves the day by bringing Harry and Hermione back and they, they change the history and Buckbeak and Sirius escape and Sirius is Harry's godfather and send him the broom.
1: Okay, count me in.
2: Three, two, one... Go.
1: So after spending the summer in Paris, I, I mean, Hermione, sends Harry a birthday present. And then I go to Diagon, I mean, she goes to Diagon Alley and she gets crookshanks after she sees Ron and Harry. And then she goes and she has a secret meeting with Professor McGonagall and does a time turner. And she has to take this really annoying class with Professor Trelawney. And so she storms out and she's super stressed. And she and my best friend, her best friend, Ron, thinks that her animal killed his animal, but that didn't happen. And then she has to use the time turner to save the day. and And then at the very end, she's like, it isn't worth it being stressed. So I turn back in the time turner.
2: I love it. I love it. Finally, we get Hermione Granger and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Or oh, really, Hermione Granger and my year in Paris.
1: <laughs> my summer in Paris.
2: She likes to summer in Paris.
1: She summered en Paris.
2: So, Vanessa, whenever we're doing a show, it's often easy to lose track of our central character, Harry Potter. So, yeah, no, you may not have heard of him. So when we do these book recaps, we like to just look at the kind of character arc for Harry over the book. So Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter, what do we learn about Harry? What new developments do we see? What struck you from this reading?
1: So I was thinking back that in book one, we find that Harry sort of gets introduced to the magical world. And then in book two, I think the conclusion we came to was that Harry starts to really feel at home in
2: Hogwarts. Right.
1: In book three, I wonder what you make of this. This is the first time that he's introduced to a real family. That's
2: exactly what I was thinking. Yeah,
1: yeah. he meets Sirius, and to some extent, Lupin. He's getting this connection to his parents as human beings. Yes. That feels incredibly meaningful. He thinks he sees his father. He has this really strong connection and this possibility of a home outside of the Dursleys. And I think it's the first time he can imagine himself going home from Hogwarts to not the
2: Dursleys. Well, I think what's really interesting is because we do see the Weasleys in book two where he has a kind of promise of what a different kind of home could be, but it's never going to be his home. So I think you're exactly right. Like now we're getting a real promise of Sirius saying when all of this is over, like you can come and live with me.
1: Right. And this book ends, he doesn't end by saying to Vernon, like, and I have a standing invitation at the Weasleys to go to the Quidditch World Cup. He's like, I have a godfather.
2: And he's a mass murderer.
1: (laughs) Right. But it's like, I have a home yes. that's not here. Yes. And so, I mean, it's about threatening Vernon, but it's also about diminishing the power that Vernon has because he's like, dude, I have backup.
2: I love what you're saying about this new connection to family because obviously it's through Sirius and the godfather relationship and the kind of backlog of presence that comes bundled up together in the firebolt but there's also things like the marauder's map right which his father was involved in creating he learns more about the story of his dad and he's the
1: patronus ex- well
2: exactly yeah so it ends up with not even like a connection to his dad but it's what Dumbledore says that like your father lives in you so I think it is this interesting arc that we've had so far of kind of harry leaving the muggle world finally in book two kind of accepting that he belongs at hogwarts and now he's beginning to look on the other side of that arc of like well belonging to a family or a place or a people outside of hogwarts as well so there is this expansion into the magical world he meets the minister for magic he's beginning to see some new physical locations as well so maybe this broadening of belonging actually is also happening
1: And I feel like so far in the books, Harry has really been trying to figure out his identity as something other than the unwanted nephew slash cousin. So I'm curious as we go on if these books are really about identity formation up until what could be Harry's death when he walks into the forest at the end. I mean, I think that the books are going to make the argument that You keep forming until you let go because up through book seven, Harry is making these like incredible identity defining choices that not just reveal who he is, but where he decides who he is up until the moment where he decides to walk into the forest So, yeah, I think that it's about all of the different ways that we are constantly defining who we are in the life that we are given.
2: And so often we're looking at Harry's story with Tom Riddle's story and how they diverge and how they converge. And in this book, because Voldemort is absent, we don't really have that mirror to place in connection to Harry. And maybe the fact that Voldemort isn't here this book Harry maybe has less clarity?
1: Or Harry is given the opportunity to see himself in his father and given the opportunity to see himself in Lupin. Uh-huh. He doesn't constantly have to be putting himself in conversation with Voldemort, and he's therefore given this more expansive opportunity for
2: who to see himself in. I love that.
1: And I think that that maybe speaks, as far as a life lesson, into who you surround yourself with matters.
2: Right. Like, Harry is not asking himself all the time, should I be in Slytherin? Because he's not focusing all his attention and therefore his intention on someone who he shouldn't be emulating.
1: Right. And that's not to say that there should only be people in our lives who like are positive, wonderful people. Like you're going to have adversarial relationships, but it's about how you want to put yourself in conversation with those. I think this is a really great opportunity for Harry to not have to carry around the burden of Voldemort all the time. Maybe if Voldemort was looming in the background, Harry wouldn't be able to learn how to cast a Patronus. That's
2: exactly what I was thinking.
1: Like he yeah. needs the freedom of being able to think good thoughts, which that has to be wrapped up in thoughts about his dad. I feel like it's possible without the stress of Voldemort, his imagination is able to like be broader and more wild. And, and he's able to imagine himself as someone who can cast a Patronus.
2: I love that idea. You know, we think about book seven as the book where Harry really leaves Hogwarts and goes on his like rumspringer. You know, it's kind of like epic leaving of his everyday to go on this adventure. But maybe it's actually book three where he's given the freedom to explore and experiment and to to live free of that fear.
1: Yeah, there's um, a Kabbalistic idea that in order to travel the world, you don't have to leave your house. And that's only true if your mind is free. If your mind is being locked down, then it doesn't matter where you are. You can be traveling the world and still in your own head. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, we see that here, that in book seven, Harry is technically free. He's not in school. He's running around, but he has this huge burden on his shoulders. And so he feels completely trapped. Whereas this year, he's at Hogwarts, he is limited. He's not allowed to leave the grounds, right? He's incredibly limited. And yet because he has a teacher who believes in him and because he doesn't have this chain around his ankle the way that he usually does a Voldemort, he's able to grow in ways that are really surprising.
2: And it's not that fear isn't there, right? As you say, like the Hogwarts grounds are literally surrounded by dementors, but it doesn't have that personalized terror that comes with Voldemort.
1: Yeah, but I do think that the fact that Harry is marked by Voldemort does make him more marked by the Dementors. Dementors impact him more than they impact everybody else. And again, I just really like that the books tend to be making this narrative claim that injustice or evil cannot be easily rectified, that even while Voldemort is gone, I know I'm repeating myself, but even while he's gone, the repercussions of the evil that he has done is being felt. You can't just forget about evil. It is ever present all the time in these small micro ways that still materially matter.
2: Yeah, it's an image of trauma in a way. Like, it's it's embodied in Harry when he engages with the Dementors, which, you know, does not make me think also about characters like Luna who are yet to meet or other characters who've experienced significant trauma and their experiences with the Dementors. But that is taking us into fan fiction. But it's an interesting thought. No,
1: it's interesting to be curious about, like, what is Luna's experience this year? She's there. We just don't meet her.
2: Somewhere in the Ravenclaw Tower.
1: Yeah, and shoeless. <laughs> So, Casper, in addition to Harry, what other sort of like long view things do you want to consider from Prisoner of Azkaban?
2: There is a really significant thing that happens, which is Trelawney's prediction. And she's introduced as, you know, such an absurd character in many ways, but ends up speaking real truth and and the prediction comes true. And it just opened questions for me thinking about truth telling or future predicting in a way that I still find uncomfortable. My rational mind kind of wants to dismiss it. But there are moments where you just have an intuition about something. And clearly, Trelawney's prediction is more than an intuition because it's an out-of-body experience. It's something that takes a hold of her, which has all sorts of interesting questions to ask about possession in a way. And this book is about wizardry and witchcraft. And if we think about in our kind of human history, how we think about witchcraft and wizardry, it is often about the fear of an other possessing your physical body.
1: I see it very much as an allegory of, you know, the way that mental health has been perceived over time. It used mm-hmm. to be that if you had schizophrenia, it was considered a possession, whereas now we're like, no, there's a pharmacological thing that can be addressed here. And we understand it in a neurobiological and chemical way. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, I think it's really interesting that we see Trelawney literally be possessed. There are moments in our lives where we are possessed with an intuition of like, I should not trust this person.
2: I remember that I've talked before about the experience I had as like a very small child, was maybe eight or nine, and feeling this sense of immediate distrust to someone my dad wanted to go into business with. And I think a lot of people have stories like that as children, especially. So is there something about being a child or childlike, which allows for access to some sort of truth, which is non-rational or we're more sensitive to how people are behaving. And maybe that is something that Trelawney embodies, like she is quite childlike in some ways. She's stubborn and and a little selfish and wants to be the center of attention, but then it's like, no, don't look at me, you know. And maybe that also allows for her channel to the truth beyond her own control.
1: I mean, I also think her isolation possibly mm. participates in her accessibility to the truth.
2: Alcohol. And, <laughs> alcohol. I mean, really, but like, there is something about that of ecstatic experience that is enabled through substances.
1: Through substances and, and also through a highly ritualized experience, exactly. right? Her life is cloistered and just it's just this very ritualized experience. And yeah, people who talk about going to church regularly, you don't always feel the presence. Of God, but you go in order to leave yourself access to that possibility. And then every once in a while, you get that access and you have those ecstatic experiences. But you're much more likely to have them if you're constantly creating space for the possibility
2: of it. Trelawney is a devout something.
1: She's a monk, right? Or a cloistered nun, or.
2: Oh, that's really interesting, Vanessa. You know, we remember from history these cloistered women and men who, you know, literally lived in a tiny cell. And often these kind of extreme monastics would have visions or would talk about things that they heard God say to them. You know, I think of people like Hildegard of Bingen, who was not a cloistered woman, but she was a nun. And, you know, her stories and the images that she told about what she'd seen – are extremely striking and very anti-authoritarian in a way because she was claiming the authority as a woman to know what God was saying or at least to see things that other people didn't see. And so maybe Trelawney is actually a very subversive character who's kind of undercutting the ministry of magic by truth-telling. But there's something unsatisfying about seeing her as a nun as well because I I don't feel like she has the integrity. What do you mean? How does she not have the integrity of a nun? Well, she's like very show-offy and like you know, she wants to claim credit for everything, even when she's making false predictions, like she sees the grim in a teacup, that kind of thing.
1: Okay, well, first of all, I really do think there's an argument to be said that none of her predictions are that false. And we've talked about that a little bit before, that all of her predictions, to some extent, end up being true. I don't think she's a false prophet. And I do think that often religious leaders or people who commit themselves to a more spiritual life do it in large part because of ego. And I think that that's fine, right? I mean, this is me quoting who I've quoted before, my former clinical pastoral education supervisor, who when I said to her, I'm worried that I sit with dying people because it feeds my ego. She was like, does it keep your butt in the chair while you're sitting with dying people? And I was like, yeah. She was like, great. (laughs) Like, let it feed your ego. (laughs) Eventually, you won't be in it as much for your ego. But for now, like you are sitting with dying people. I don't care why, I mean, there are just a lot of reasons to become a nun. As you talked about with Hildegard, and it's also true for Teresa of Avila, like there are in large parts political reasons why women historically have become nuns. If you don't want to get married, like I visited a convent in Arequipa, Peru, and they had an amazing tradition of like rich lesbians who would come and it was like, dad, I don't want to get married. And their dads would pay the convent to take them in. And these rich women would like come with their servants. And live like pretty affluent lives as nuns. And part of me is like judgmental. I'm like, you weren't a real nun. You were just escaping. What were there other options? They would have just been in like marriages that were completely untrue to their sexuality. And so, like, historical context allowed them to live these lives. I don't know. I think it's okay to see her as a nun figure. And I think that we need to complicate our ideas of what religious lives look like.
2: Okay, yes. And somewhere there has to be a line, right? Because otherwise you end up in a kind of Jonestown nightmare scenario.
1: Oh, of course. I mean, like the line is when it starts negatively impacting other people, right? If I said to my supervisor, oh, it's my ego that gets me yelling at patients, she'd be like, "Mm, let's talk about that, right? It's if your ego is serving people in a positive way. It's the way that we do Lectio, too, right? Like, as long as it's getting you toward love, if it's getting you toward healing the world, if it's getting you toward some sort of truth in Trelawney's point of view, I think it's okay if our intentions are complicated. I mean, like, the (laughs) power— can become corrupting, right? There's absolutely a risk for Trelawney to become a bad version of this.
2: Well, and in some ways it's funny that she takes most pride in the things that she's conscious of when really her biggest gift is way beyond her conscious mind, right? She doesn't remember that she actually gave this extremely insightful prediction like she thinks she's just passed out or like she was tired or something so there's something interesting in there that there is a sign of humility
1: and i think that that's a beautiful idea too that we don't even know the way that we touch each other's lives and we might be most proud of how much money we make or any other sort of accomplishments when really it's like you were nice to this stranger once and like that's the real mark you've had on the world
0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Vanessa, I own a t-shirt that says Draco Malfoy is my boyfriend, and I feel like we haven't talked about Draco
1: yeah, and he worries me in this book. Really? Yes.
2: In what ways?
1: So the big plot arc for Draco in this book is he taunts an animal, the animal attacks him, and then he tries to have the animal killed. Right. So first of all, we know that like animal torture in young children tends to be an indicator of potential sociopathy later in life. He is not directly torturing Buckbee. He's hoisted it upon, like, the system. But what I empathize with in what Draco does is that he gets embarrassed. He gets publicly humiliated. Yeah. And he is like, well, I've been embarrassed and therefore I must lash out so that It doesn't become about me in this way. I really empathize with that. Just the other day, I embarrassed myself and I closed my eyes and I was like, okay, now you have to open your eyes again. Like, it's the worst to feel embarrassed in that way. But the fact that he sees it through for so long and for so many months, I find it incredibly disturbing.
2: I feel like this is where Snape really fails. We have so many reasons to be angry at Snape. But I think his failure of a basic duty of care is one of the things we should talk about because in this situation, right, he's a 13-year-old boy. Draco comes from a difficult family background where he has very negative examples. And he's done something exactly as you say, and he's been publicly humiliated. He needs a way to save face or he needs someone to help him turn this story into something positive in a way where he can keep his dignity and move forward in a different way but the lesson he's learning here is like no one's going to come and support you no one likes you if you're not strong do whatever you need to do to push everyone back down dress up to make harry fall off his broom and scare him like a dementor keep pursuing the death of an innocent animal just so you get revenge like no one is saying like draco you're better than this and we know that Ultimately, he could be. That's what I find so frustrating about Draco in these whole books is no one just sits him down and like gives him a hug that's all this kid needs.
1: Oh, I completely agree. And a lot of therapy. Uh, Yeah, he definitely needs a lot of therapy.
2: Like, the only story he's offered is supremacy. Like, if you're not on top, you failed. And, I mean, like, what an allegory in the moment that we're in right now for white people.
1: That is exactly it. He is being trained as a young white supremacist. He is like, when this animal was not bending to my will, it was misbehaving. Right. And he believes that that is a just argument that is underneath his embarrassment is that it's not just that he was embarrassed is that he was embarrassed by something that he sees as truly inferior to him and that is the thing that makes this so deeply insidious and troubling is his fundamental belief that he was more than embarrassed he was humiliated yes. because it's his rightful place to be above this thing
2: this reminds me so much of an interview I just heard with Derek Black, who grew up in a very prominent white nationalist family. And he, you know, was very involved. He hosted his own radio show as, as a young teenager at about Draco's age. Oh, my gosh. And ended up going to college where kind of he was unmasked, literally. And he was confronted with a whole new set of perspectives, in particular, a Jewish student who had Shabbat dinner with him and really befriended him against all the odds and took him on this journey of learning and empathy so that now this man in his 20s or early 30s is speaking out on national media against his own family and their hateful actions and perspectives at great cost for his own emotional well-being. And like this could have happened for Draco. And that's why Snape is like the wrong housemaster. It's why I do feel like the other staff at Hogwarts are indicted here. This is a child who's on a really bad path, which they have seen before with Tom Riddle. Like, it's not the first time, people.
1: So the other big thing that I wanted to talk about is Hogwarts. We made a lot of jokes this season about the failed pedagogy of Hogwarts. Right. And I am really curious as to what we think the role of Hogwarts is Mm -hmm. and what the role of school is. And it could be it's the beginning of the school year. Casper, years of my students just arrived and so little of what it is that they are anxious about are the things that happen in the classroom. Why do we do this? Why do we put a bunch of kids together with so little adult supervision? And why do we just like let them live in a Lord of the Flies type situation where they're fat enough and their like basic needs are met? But other than that, they're just like unsupervised and uncoached. And I'm just curious what role does Hogwarts see itself as having in these students' lives?
2: Right. And is the teacher per student ratio as poor as it seems in these pages? You know, the influence that they have is more likely to come from like the Bloody Baron or Peeves as it is to be from McGonagall or Dumbledore. I mean, the absence of Dumbledore in this book is so striking. He is so far away. He is so unapproachable. I mean, he returns here and there for some like truth bombs. But how is life being modeled for these students in a way that is accessible and inspirational and factual? of what real adult life is like. I know
1: that we've talked a lot as a society about how the current education system in the United States is based on this like industrialization model of how we want to train young people. But what's occurring to me as you talk about the epidemic of loneliness in the United States is how strange it is at all how much we separate children and adults. We know more and more that multi-generational life is like healthier for everyone. So why do we separate these kids kids from any adult who could reasonably give them a hug. None of these kids are getting hugs. I feel like Hagrid might be the only
2: hugger of the lot. And he's living outcast, he's been expelled and he's at the perimeter of the whole school. I do want to say, I think we have to remember where this book was written. Like J.K. Rowling is British the schooling system is modeled on like a British boarding school system and I think so much of the British identity and especially like what we call public schools which are actually private schools it's very confusing but the whole idea of an elite private school which Hogwarts is modeled on is about a narrative of supremacy it's about that this class of people is better than the people who go to the schools where the normal kids go you're a boarding student you have extra privileges you have extra opportunities and that's what wealth and privilege and power are all about, and these institutions are there to maintain them from generation to generation. And if that means taking you away from your parents and, like, physical affection, kids start boarding school age seven in the UK. You literally take them away from the love of their parents to instill them a different set of values, which is about you are better than other people, and that's what you have to maintain. It's clearly coming from a place of my own experience. But, like, that's literally what we were told, like, that you are better than other people. Like, that's the story that Draco cannot escape throughout this whole book. Until the point where he, like, watches
1: a muggle studies teacher get killed right in front of him and says nothing. Exactly.
2: And then what do you do? You can't come back from that. No,
1: because then you're complicit in crimes that you have to justify through your actions for the rest
2: of your life. Which is what Pettigrew does throughout this whole book, right? There's no way back for him because he's already made a choice. The only place he can escape to is into Voldemort's arms.
1: Okay, I think that we found the answer. We just have to burn the empire down. (sighs)
2: Man, maybe Azkaban is actually really interesting.
1: So, Casper, now is time for our spiritual practice. The first time we did a whole book review, we did, like, accidental Floralegia.
2: I love that. We didn't even know. And
1: then last year, we got to really do a Floralegia properly with Professor Paul Sells. So let's keep the tradition alive. We each picked a sentence that we think somehow speaks to the greater themes of the entire book. Which quote did you pick? I'm dying to know.
2: It's funny you say dying because my <laughs> quote is... The murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles was the action of a cornered and desperate man, cruel, pointless. What did you find?
1: I picked the sentence, you've got the wrong man. Okay. So tell me, why did you pick that sentence?
2: It's funny that we've actually chosen a really similar point because it is about having the wrong man. It's about the deception, right? The murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles. It's not the murder of Pettigrew. Pettigrew is the murderer. Of course, this is the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, talking about Sirius at that point, about halfway through the book. And he's illustrating Sirius as cruel And pointless, which I think is a really interesting word to use, especially for the Minister of Magic. I mean, I guess he's saying pointless because those 12 Muggles were not political targets, right? It was not a specific hit job. But I actually think there was a clear point that Pettigrew was making. It was about claiming power and obviously he's trying to mask his own disappearance but it's also something about like look how powerful i am as someone who's always been demeaned i think there's something going on there so i just feel like there's layers there's this sense of mistaken identity there's a sense of actually understanding pettigrew's motives a little bit better and ultimately the whole sentence i think also speaks to this hidden presence that as you've talked about is still there even in its absence it's about voldemort as well So I don't know. It really struck me on multiple levels.
1: Yeah. I really like you drawing our attention to the word pointless because – something can be meaningless Mm -hmm. or senseless. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it was pointless, Mm -hmm. right? Like Mm -hmm. the suffering of millions of people in war is senseless and it's unjustifiable. But there was a point to it. Someone was instrumentalizing that suffering. There was intention behind it. Whereas Pointless, I think, is when there's no intention, right? Like cancer is pointless suffering. Like cancer doesn't have an intention.
2: That's true. Although I think it also depends on whose perspective you're talking from. Because yeah. I think in this case, the fact that it's the minister of magic, the person who's in charge of the whole country, you know, this is kind of tweetable. There's a total disregard for people who he should be very invested in. Like I think for him, it feels like a political matter that you know he's having to clean up in some way like there's no empathy in here like as you say there's can you read it again yeah the murder of pettigrew and all those muggles was the action of a cornered and desperate man cruel dot 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 pointless it feels like it's a word that's in his brain and it kind of escapes i don't know i i'm just very troubled by it it's
1: troubling. It also seems to be empathizing with Sirius a little bit, right? That it was an act of a desperate man. Mm,
2: that's interesting. I
1: mean, it's interesting that he's empathizing to the point where he can perceive that if Sirius had done this, it would be out of an, an act of desperation. He doesn't say it was a cruel act. It was a act of a maniacal vicious murderer
2: oh this is fascinating because we're gonna see fudge behave in some horrific ways because he also feels himself to be cornered and desperate yeah and so maybe he you know obviously he doesn't yet know what's coming but maybe he's been in that kind of situation before and he's excusing this kind of behavior a little yeah
1: he's like i've acted out when i've been cornered right Right. i buy that very much because there does seem to be a sort of brushing off of all the people who died other than Pettigrew, probably because they're muggles. They're, like, not his responsibility. Right. But he does seem to be empathizing, at least to a small extent, with Sirius.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. Tell me about your quote.
1: Yeah, so I did You've Got the Wrong Man, which is in all caps in the book. And in a very literal level, it speaks to the title of the book, which is The Prisoner of Azkaban, mm. right? And it's even interesting that that's the title of the book, that it makes it Here is though it's a book about Sirius. And yet we meet Sirius. We spend a little time with Sirius. He's this looming presence in the book. But it's so strange that that is the title.
2: You know what just struck me? What? The next book that we're going to read is going to deal so much with A Prisoner of Azkaban.
1: With Barty Cratch Jr. Exactly.
2: That's a really interesting thing to pull attention to this for this book. Because as you say, Sirius is pretty absent. And he's not in Azkaban. As we're engaging with him.
1: No, it seems like the title that is like least to do with what actually happens in the plot. And therefore, I feel like we have to take it seriously. We're being pointed in a direction of like, look here, look at invisible people who are prisoners or I don't know. But anyway, the fact that it's called The Prisoner of Azkaban, and he is not the man who should have been in jail this entire time. You know, the fact that it's in all caps speaks to me of desperation, of like exclamation of, this is when Harry is screaming to the Minister of Magic and Snape when he says this line, you've got the wrong man. And it's out of such a sense of desperation. In the face of that title, it just feels incredibly important to me. I mean, this is such a silly moment to remember, but the only time I can remember screaming at the top of my lungs and feeling entirely unheard was a moment when I had to go for booster shots when I was like five or six years old and I knew it was going to hurt and I didn't like getting shots. And I just threw a complete meltdown temper tantrum. And it was the first time that I felt like my mom would not negotiate with what I felt to be a very reasonable thing, which was not wanting the doctor to assault me. And I understand that she had a very reasonable point. But it was the first time that I felt like I was screaming something that felt so important to me and I was being unheard. And that I could kick and scream and cry, and I was not going to change the fate of what was going to happen to me, and how powerless I felt. And I mean, the stakes are so much higher for Harry in this moment, and I just can't imagine how scary it must feel to scream at the top of your lungs to the minister of magic and a teacher like, you are about to kill my godfather, who is totally innocent and feel like it's just falling on deaf ears.
2: So Vanessa, let's put these two sentences next to each other. Why don't you read yours first?
1: You've got the wrong man.
2: The murder of Pettigrew and all those muggles was the action of a cornered and desperate man, cruel, pointless.
1: I just feel like this speaks to all of the unfair suffering in the world. Whenever any innocent person is suffering, we have the wrong person, and it's not that there is a right person who should be being punished in their stead. It's just like, nobody should be being punished. Nobody should be carpet bombed. Nobody should die in a car accident. That's just a freak accident. I just think that, you know, these 12 people, these 12 completely innocent, right. pointless deaths.
2: And we don't even get the number 12. It's all those muggles. Yeah. Not only do we use that word muggles, we don't even count how many of them there are. Right. One final thing that your sentence reminded me of is that Harry has the wrong man at the lake, right? He thinks it's his father and it's actually himself. And so this mistaken identity and like who you think you see is not really who it is and you are more than you think you are, like that's that's just such a theme throughout this whole book. And Vanessa, I will say like, just like Harry, who doesn't think he can cast a Patronus, like all of us are better than we think we are sometimes, or at least are capable of it and and we show it, right? Trelawney actually does give these huge predictions even when she's not conscious of it. Sirius blames himself for the death of Lillian James when, of course, he wasn't. So I I feel like maybe there's something in here that we can take away of. We are capable of being better and we often are better than we think we are. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages. Who are you giving your blessing to for the Prisoner of Azkaban?
1: I would like to bless Hermione. I'm blessing her because of something we talked a little bit about in this episode, which is not always having the best intentions for things. So I've blessed Hermione in, in this book for just like her love of learning for the sake of learning and for her like commitment to really understanding things, which works out so well for her and for the rest of the team. But I think that there are a lot of reasons why she grabs that time turner. I think that she goes for the time turner because she realizes that, you know, she's not going to learn everything in one lifetime, that like there aren't enough hours in the day or in a life to learn all the things you want to learn. And I think that she goes for the time turner because she just can't stand the idea that she won't be the very best student and that there is ego involved that there's fear involved and that there's sadness and grief involved in trying so desperately to get extra time. And I just want to give a blessing for all of those existential fears that we all carry around when we date the wrong person because we're afraid of being alone or when we starve ourselves because we're afraid of being fat or we binge on something because we're sad or any of the sort of sad things that we do that we feel so much shame around in our lives. Whereas I wish that we could just have conversations about these scary emotions and and not feel the need to sort of self-harm in the face of them. And I really think that we watch Hermione hurt herself throughout this entire novel. And it's condoned by society and the authorities around her. And so I just, I want to give a blessing for anybody who is feeling overwhelmed by certain emotions and feels drawn to do something that isn't necessarily good for themselves in the face of that. And, you know, encourage all of us to try to have difficult conversations instead. Casper, who would you like to bless?
2: My blessing is going to be for Hagrid. We've talked a little bit that he was the prisoner of Azkaban as well. But, you know, it's just suddenly struck me Looking at the whole arc of the book, we find out how Buckbeak escapes. Hagrid never does. And he's been someone who's been excluded and marginalized because he always cares for these magical and sometimes dangerous creatures. And here's a creature that really wasn't dangerous, that was perfectly safe if you encountered it in a way that was sensible. And I feel like Hagrid experiences a miracle. like He doesn't know how on earth Buckbeak, who was tied up, is now free. And I just love that this is like a sign from the universe for him to continue doing what he does, which is just give his love in abundance to these animals who are so misunderstood and targeted.
1: And I love that he experiences it as a miracle. He's not like, oh, no, where did Buckbeak go? It's
2: like Buckbeak is free. Yeah. And so for anyone who feels like there's just this sign that they don't understand, like, let's take that as a sign to keep being generous, keep being loving, and blessings to Hagrid.
1: Oh, amen. I had not thought of that. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A couple of exciting announcements if you're local to the Boston-Cambridge area. The class that Casper and I started a couple years ago is starting up again this fall with brand new facilitators totally on its own, and we are so proud and excited that this is now just out in the world. And it is starting to meet here at Harvard Divinity School on September 27th. If you have any questions about it, please email leaders at sacredtext.org or go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com.
2: And we're doing another live show. We're going to be in Somerville, Massachusetts on the 18th of October. Tickets and more information will be released soon. Keep up to date by signing up for our newsletter and save that date. Wednesday, the 18th of October.
1: Next week, we'll be wrapping up Season 3, Prisoner of Azkaban, with an owl post and a special guest, Sejal Patel.
2: This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nedelman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Boll, and we are proud to be part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to our social media manager, Hashi Hetigay, Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, Professor Stephanie Pulsell, and all of you for listening. We'll see you next week.
1: Well, Rory is actually really interested in space camp. I've tried, because she's a girl pup, I've tried to really push STEM on her.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. So. She's like working in her lab being like, mm, next time we will make time. Is she German? <laughs> she's like, okay, turn to page 294. Is <laughs> that 394? 394.
0: 394. <laughs>